0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for cancer patients. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, November 13th, Entrepreneur and philanthropist Sean Parker, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and famed oncologists Ned Sharpless, Douglas Lowey, and Zeke Emanuel discussed advances in cancer detection and treatment at the Washington Post's third annual Chasing Cancer Summit. In this segment, doctors and medical experts discuss the rising HPV-related cancer rates in the United States and how doctors are looking to treat and eradicate these preventable cancers. Let's listen.
1: Morning. I'm Lenny Bernstein. I'm a health and medicine reporter here at The Washington Post and i'm joined by uh, on stage by three of the titans of the cancer community Dr. Douglas Lowy, deputy director of the National Cancer Institute uh, Dr. Moore Gilson, professor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and uh, Dr. Akila Viswanathan who's the executive director I'm sorry the executive vice chair of the Johns Hopkins Radiation Oncology and Molecular Radiation Sciences Division and one of the titans of the journalism community Steve Hendricks uh, who uh, has um, an experience with this disease and has written a story for the Post about it, and uh, we'll get to that. Uh, I want to let you know that if you have questions, you can tweet them, and they will be passed on to me, and I'll, I'll ask them. Uh, HPV cancers, uh, according to CDC data, have risen from about, uh, uh, to about 42,700 in 2015, um, and uh, more among women than, uh, than among men. Um, but we're going to have our panel discuss all of that. Um, Dr. Gillison, can you um, just outline the scope of this problem for us? It's a type of cancer probably that many people are not familiar with.
2: Sure. So, first of all, HPV is necessary for the development of about 4.5 percent of the worldwide cancer burden each year. Uh, that's approximately 630,000 cases. Most of those cases worldwide are cervical cancer. 83% are cervical cancers in women, largely in low- and middle-income countries. Uh, fortunately in the United States and other developed countries, cervical cancer incidence has declined dramatically over the last five decades as a consequence of effective screening programs. What has happened, therefore, in developing country, developed countries, such as the U.S., is unscreened HPV caused cancers have increased over the last several decades. Uh, the burden of HPV caused cancers in the United States over the last decade has switched from uh, men, from women to men. There are more HPV caused throat cancers among men in the United States than there are cervical cancers among women now.
1: Hmm. So has screening fallen off? Are we just not doing as much as we did?
2: No, cervical cancers are the only HPV-caused cancers for which there are effective screening programs. Mm -hmm. The other anogenital cancers caused by HPV, vulvar, penile, anal cancers, are uh, not routinely screened for, and there are no screening programs currently for HPV-caused throat cancers.
1: But we have a primary preventive, Dr. Viswanathan. We we have a primary preventive vaccine.
3: That's right. Uh, So we not only have screening programs for women, but we do also have vaccination programs uh, that have been approved for children uh, starting at age nine and now going up to age 45. But we uh, have seen a decline worldwide of about 1% uh, in cervical cancer and and HPV-related malignancies as a result of that. Uh, But there's been mixed penetrance in terms of uptake of the vaccine. So, uh, you know, not everyone that's eligible for the vaccine, unfortunately, gets the vaccine, and that is a, a big problem. I think that we need to address,
1: Dr. Louis. Why is that?
4: Well, I think that in terms of uptake of the vaccine, there really are multiple reasons why, in the United States, there has been less vaccine uptake. Uh, the Center for Disease Control says that there is provider hesitancy. The HPV vaccine is unusual in that the children of uh, poor families actually have higher vaccine uptake than children of more well-to-do uh, families. Uh, on the other hand, for when you think about uh, oropharynx cancer and HPV, it's very important to recognize that while the vaccine is effective at dramatically reducing the risk of infection and ultimately of developing disease. Most of the infections are occurring when people are relatively young, whereas the cancers are occurring usually when people are in their 50s. And so adults who are now, let's say, 40 or 50 years old are not going to benefit from the vaccine. The vaccine really is for the next generation uh, rather than for the current generation of adults.
1: So many of us, most of us, will be exposed to the infection but only a few of us will get the HPV-related cancers.
4: That, that's correct. I mean, the, for a woman, it's estimated that uh, a woman's lifetime risk of acquiring a genital HPV infection is on the order of 75 to 80% to have at least one uh, infection. And men? And, and men, probably comparable, yes.
1: And then does it depend on your immune system, or why is it that so well, few people... N-
4: luckily, this? most people who were infected with HPV clear their infection, And when they clear their infection, the risk of developing a cancer at that site of infection also goes away for that infection. But they remain uh, susceptible to infection by other types. And if they're cancer-causing types, then you need to worry about it. Again, the vaccine can prevent the majority of the infections that lead to cancer.
1: So then I guess the question becomes for the panel, why are so few people getting the vaccine? Well... Is it's, it the anti-vax movement?
4: Well, Where do we start? It's a, first, I think that actually a lot, of pe- a lot more people now are getting the vaccine than was the case a few years ago. Uh, the latest data from the CDC suggests that about 60 to 65 percent of eligible 13 to 17 year old teenagers are getting one dose and about 40 percent are up to date. But in terms of the, the question, certainly people opposed to, vac- uh, to vaccines in general, uh, that has been a concern. There's been a, a concern about safety, although the comprehensive review two years ago by the CDC uh, said that the side effects of the HPV vaccine are that of side effects of other, va- of other vaccines. So I, I, I think that uh, another issue is... Uh, one of uh, sexual activity. Uh, Again, concern that the vaccine would be a license for sexual activity, but a number of studies have shown that the decision to have sex or not to have sex is really made almost entirely independent of whether or not you've been vaccinated.
1: But when a parent takes their 12 or 13 year old in to see the doctor, this is one of the things that's
4: Sure. And what happens is that girls tend to be vaccinated at a somewhat older age than boys. And I think that, again, parents' perceptions uh, about when uh, people become sexually active probably have uh, a role in that.
1: Right. Steve, you uh, had an HPV-related cancer. Can you describe your experience for us?
5: Well, I think the two things I remember about learning that I had this kind of cancer was first... uh, 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 something that hasn't come up here today, which this is, a, this is a very treatable cancer. The success rate is extremely high. Uh, and the second was what Dr. Lowe said earlier, that this the infection can occur when you're very young and the cancer can occur when you're very old, which is something that I told my wife repeatedly and had my physician tell her as well. <laughs> um, uh, the fact that it's so treatable was immensely reassuring, but it also became probably one of the points of the greatest tension I had as a patient trying to decide what treatment to have, because as I've learned in this experience, medicine is terrific at advancing treatments. It's not so good at backing off of them when they realize that they don't need to bring all their artillery to a particular cancer. So what happened? Well, the the consequences of the standard protocol, which is uh, upwards of 90% successful, as, as I understand it, uh, is still heavily based on, on radiation therapy that in itself can have morbidities and consequences. Um, Radiologists have gotten far better at controlling them, um, but there are still possibilities of losing your ability to swallow and being confined to a feeding tube, Um, uh, dry mouth, permanent dry mouth, uh, future bone cancers in the jaw. It's just not something you want to have if you can avoid it. So when you're faced with, a uh, now physicians are sort of arguing amongst themselves on, well, we can sort of avoid this. We can back off this. But there's always the constant pushback of, but we're so successful, we can really almost assure patients that they're gonna survive. It's very difficult to come back and say, well, we're less sure about this one, but you have, you know, you'll have a greater quality of life. So that was a difficult decision to make. I ended up going with a fairly experimental protocol that avoided radiation entirely, and had a, uh, three courses of chemotherapy followed by surgical, robotic surgical removal of the tumor at the deep base of my tongue. And a necrosection that took out uh, 80 or so lymph nodes.
1: How'd you make that decision?
5: Uh, it was difficult. <laughs> um, a lot of consultation with, with friends and family, uh, a lot of sort of shoe leather journalism where I, you know, kind of went beyond maybe what some patients feel comfortable doing and finding out the state of the art in other places. And finally, just kind of deciding to trust the, the physicians who at GW who said, we have a lot of faith in this, and uh, there's a backup. If we don't feel like we've been successful, then we'll bring in follow-up radiation, and you can sort of count yourself among the cohort that can count on 90% success.
2: Yeah, when we first identified HPV as a cause of neck cancer, we looked at the incidence rates in, in the United States at that time and discovered that there was a, a dramatic increase in incidence rates of this cancer in in young men. Uh, Then we found that the single greatest determinant of whether or not you lived or died after a diagnosis of head and neck cancer was the HPV status of your tumor. So that if your tumor is HPV positive, your risk of dying is reduced by over half. So we recognized that we had this young group of individuals in their 40s who were being diagnosed and treated with a very aggressive um, regimen, um, and that they were largely expected to survive from their cancer. And so for the first time as a head and neck cancer treating physician, we saw patients who had the opportunity to live with the consequences of that treatment. So for the last 15 years, we've been really trying to see, can we back off on the intensity of the therapy and reduce both the acute and long-term toxicities of the therapy? Uh, tomorrow will be um, uh, the first publication of our first efforts in, in that, uh, the report of the first randomized phase three trial exclusive to patients with this uh, disease. Uh, we reported the, the data at Astro r- recently, so I can discuss a little bit of it. Um, we uh, The standard of care has been uh, high doses of radiation and high doses of chemotherapy that can leave you with uh, quite a few long-term Uh, consequences of treatment. So uh, a targeted molecular therapy that targeted epidermal growth factor receptor became available for head and neck cancers in the US in 2006. So we tried to see if we could replace uh, the high toxic cisplatin regimen with a lower, potentially lower toxic regimen with uh, this drug called uh, cetuximab. Um, And unfortunately uh, the results showed that cetuximab was inferior to the cisplatin, that the cisplatin uh, really did improve survival. Um, uh, local control rates prevented recurrence, but unfortunately was um, more toxic. So our first foray uh, into, the, into the de-escalation unfortunately was, um, uh, didn't have the results we'd hoped for. Uh, But we have uh, more studies going on now with regard to trying to reduce uh, chemotherapy or use immunotherapy instead of chemotherapy and lower doses of radiation or different types of radiation. So we're still hopeful. Uh, There's a lot of work still going on. But one other thing that we're discovering is when the epidemic first started, it was largely in young men. As that birth cohort has aged over the last 20 years, we're seeing that there is a shift going on uh, in terms of it used to be a disease largely in 40-year-old, 50-year-old men. Now as that cohort of men is aging, uh, we're seeing that shift so we're gonna see a lot more patients diagnosed with this cancer in their 60s and 70s.
0: Hmm.
1: Steve, do you have any lasting side effects?
5: Almost none. That's I great. some reason switched from uh, scotch to bourbon. That's the only thing. <laughs> I <remember. laughs> but um, I have some numbness where the neck resection was that will probably never go away that I've long ago stopped noticing. Other than that, I can't think of anything. I swallow perfectly um, dry pills you know, when I probably shouldn't. Uh, uh, my voice didn't change. My hair grew back. And it's, and three years on, it um, feels very much like a past
1: event. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. So radiation
3: obviously has been used uh, successfully in curing over 90% of patients that are treated uh, with HPV-related malignancies of all types because it's a very sensitive type of cancer to radiation. And uh, the dose escalation that we've historically used is, uh, you know, one of the reasons for the success. But we're trying now to do much more targeted therapies so um, a lot of press has been given to proton therapy and new centers are uh, you know opening fairly frequently on an annual basis Uh, we see new new uh, locations coming on but proton therapy has the ability to tailor the treatment and stop uh, the actual radiation dose delivery before it hits the normal tissue so some of the studies going on now are exactly where in the parotid gland uh, the causes of serostomia. So, can we actually avoid treating? And we have research ongoing right now looking at uh, the spatial distribution as seen on imaging and avoiding treating those portions of the parotid because proton therapy can be so precise. That, of course, uh, is a benefit up front for patients that do need it, uh, do need the, the radiation therapy, which is currently the standard of care in um, and, and all head and neck cancer, primarily. Um, most oral uh, pharynx-related cancers, but um, we certainly see the advantages of proton therapy in reducing the normal tissue toxicities to, uh, you know, the not only the parotid but also submandibular glands, uh, you know, neck scarring, things like that. So.
1: Um, we have talked a lot about head and neck cancers. What about cervical cancer? <laughs> What's the prevalence of cerv- cervical cancer in the U.S. and the rest of the world, the, and yeah. and treatment?
3: So there, obviously, we talked about there being a fifty-year decline in the incidence of cervical cancer, but it's really plateaued over the past twenty years, where we have about fourteen thousand women. There's actually been a slight increase in the past five years, um, in, in from about twelve thousand to fourteen thousand per year being diagnosed, um, and some of that is is lack of vaccination, but also lack of screening. So the women that are diagnosed are generally young women who are not keeping up with their annual pap smears. I see a lot of women, uh, there's a bimodal distribution. So there are young women and older women that are diagnosed with cervical cancer. And the younger women, you know, are young mothers who are working and just don't have time to go to the doctors themselves. They're getting, you know, they're children to the doctor, but not really um, making the effort to go through routine screening. So it's really about empowering women to feel that, you know, and understanding that screening is essential um, to, to uh, understanding that cervical cancer does occur in 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. Um, and the time off from work and, the, you know, the consequences to their family of having to go through treatment is pretty dramatic. So being able to treat them curatively with radiation is is, uh, very important. Uh, But it means that they go through daily radiation uh, with both external techniques and then very precise or pinpointed treatment with what we call brachytherapy, which is an internal radiation that's given uh, directed kind of to the center of the tumor rather than to the entire region. And so because we've been using brachytherapy successfully, and we've now developed newer techniques with uh, advanced imaging to look exactly at where the tumor is located. We're able to bring you know 98 plus percent of women with stage one and two cervical cancer to cure. Hmm.
4: Dr. Lowy, oh please go ahead. I'd like to make two re- relevant uh, comments. First, when it comes to the vaccine, there has been some theoretical concern that. Uh, women who have been vaccinated might go for their cervical cancer screening less frequently. But that has actually not been borne out in practice uh, thus far in the United States. But it's very important, even though the vaccine can protect against much uh, of the cancer-causing infections, not all of them. So it's very important for women to continue screening. Uh, The other aspect is that the NCI is supporting research to try to uh, improve the diagnostic and precision of cervical cancer screening and also, in principle, to try to bring screening to women rather than women to the screening uh, through self-sampling. This is not yet FDA approved, but uh, I think that this is something that in the next few years might lead to FDA approval and might have an impact on reducing what tends to be this plateau uh, in terms of about uh, 13 or 14,000 cases per year.
1: Um, Australia has launched a campaign to rid the whole country of HPV-related cancers. Is that a real possibility?
4: Yeah, uh, yeah, Australia uh, is a high-adopter country. They have uh, basically provided vaccine-free to uh, to women and now also to men, uh, and so their uptake of the vaccine has been substantially higher than in the United States. Uh, and the current uh, uh, version of the vaccine, uh, the nine-valent vaccine or Gardasil, Gardasil nine, uh, can protect against about ninety percent of the cancer-causing uh, infections. And the uh, and Australia is uh, anticipating that at some point in the future, with high uptake of the vaccine, that the vast majority of those kinds of infections simply will not occur. And the cancers caused by those infections will not occur.
1: Here's a a Twitter question. David asks us, uh, how should young adults who are already sexually active decide whether to get the vaccine? Uh, And he's talking about people in his 20s, 30s, and 40s. Anyone? Sure,
2: well, I think it's important to recognize that with the new vaccine Gardasil 9, the probability that someone is already, who is already sexually active has already been exposed to all the types, all nine types, and the HPV vaccine is low. That's why um, individuals up to age 26 uh, can still benefit from the vaccine. The FDA approved uh, vaccination up to age 45, but we're still waiting to hear from the CDC as to whether or not they're going to expand the recommended age range. Um, but so, so it's common practice, for instance, in gynecologic offices for women who are getting treated for cervical dysplasia. If they haven't been vaccinated, the gynecologist will vaccinate them because it will protect that individual um, from infection by other HPV types. Not in their specific lesion.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we have a few minutes, so I'm just cautioning everybody. Um, wh- where? What, what is the future? Uh, where's the research going? And what, what is the future of this disease? Um, is this something that that we can rid our society of uh, completely? Is it something that we're just going to have to learn to live with and treat and screen? Um, or perhaps there's there are new drugs on the horizon for us.
4: Well, my sense is that if you're talking about HPV-associated cancer, there really are kind of two different stories. One is for adults, and the other is for uh, young adolescents uh, and, and people who come, after, who come after them. The vaccines are going to uh, take care of the vast majority of the disease, uh, and so in the future, I don't think we will need to worry about them. Providing we have reasonable uptake of the vaccine. Uh, On the other hand, because there's such a very long interval between the time you get vaccinated, get infected, and then develop the cancer, the cancers are going to be with us for a long time. The increase that we've seen in oropharynx cancer over the last 25 or 30 years, The uh, prediction is that it will will continue to increase for the foreseeable future. Eventually, it will go down. So it's really important for us to think about how can we improve the treatment now that we have, if you will, proof of principle, the vast majority of people who develop these cancers can be successfully treated. How can we reduce side effects, short-term and long-term? One way of doing that is with thinking about the genes from the virus that are expressed in the tumor and trying to target those genes. There is some early evidence that actually uh, Dr. Gillison was involved in showing that if you target uh, two, of those, uh, two of those genes along with more standard immunotherapy that this may actually prove beneficial and may have lower side effects. It's not yet FDA approved. You need to do more studies that are controlled, et cetera. We hope if those studies are carried out, they will be positive. But as you heard from Dr. Gillison, the first effort uh, turned out to be negative.
1: And are these therapies, Dr. Viswanathan. therapies and treatments and screening, are they all available abroad or are we in a much better position here? Is the vaccine available abroad?
3: The vaccine uh, is available globally. Um, I think that uh, the treatments themselves may or may not be available depending on the country, but in developed countries, you know, radiation is available, but there are still many, many countries uh, where it's not the uh, same thing goes for chemotherapy. There is a WHO list with chemotherapies, and so we hope that people are able to get uh, appropriate So therapy. developing
1: countries, this is still a big challenge. It is, low and middle income countries. Yeah.
4: Uh, as, as Dr. 100%. Gillison mentioned, you know about 90% of cervical cancer deaths <coughs> occur in the developing world. <clears throat> and if you, a way to think about it is that uh, one woman in three who develop cervical cancer in the United States will die from it. Whereas two women in three who develop it in the developing world are going to die from it. And many more women in the developing world will get it.
1: So we have to get the
4: vaccine. a quarter of a million women per year in the developing world will die from this and without further intervention, the estimate is that there'll be about a 40% increase every 15 years in the number of women dying from this uh, cancer.
1: Steve, I'm gonna let you have the, uh, the last word here. Um, if a friend came to you and said, I think I might have this, um, how, what would you gu- how would you guide them, what would you say?
5: Um, That has happened so many times since I published that article, Uh, not just friends. Um, I always say take heart that um, uh, cancer is a terrible word, but this is a very treatable disease. Um, uh, If you think you have it, you should certainly go check right away. I was on the phone to my doctor within minutes of finding a lump when I was shaving, and I don't know why I was so scared of it, but I was.
1: and there was no doubt in your mind that this was an unusual. one.
5: Well, uh, there was no doubt that that was a very weird thing to find on my neck. So, um, you, you know, I don't, I can't explain why I was more concerned about that than other strange things that mm-hmm. happened to me. But, uh, and the other is that um, something that I learned during this experience was that the cancer staging system where I was diagnosed with stage four carcinoma, and I didn't quite know what stage 4 was, but I knew there was no stage 5, um, was really, uh, and has since been adjusted, as I understand yeah, it. Yeah, this year. Um, so it this disease is so treatable that that conventional staging system doesn't apply very accurately. And and with the changes, as I've talked to my physician, I would now have been diagnosed with stage 1, which would have been a much nicer thing to hear.
2: Uh, <laughs>
5: So I try to play the role of being very reassuring that you know, the treatment is no fun, no matter what you choose, but it's a curable cancer and you know, life goes on.
1: Terrific, thank you. He, he wrote a beautiful story and he stopped 10 seconds before the, uh, the allotted time. So that's all we have time for. Uh, I wanna thank everybody for this great discussion. Thank you for being here with us and uh, we'll move on to our next panel.
5: Thank you.